Well, one of um, Paige and I's favorite things to do each Christmas season, or I should say Advent season really, is to watch all of the latest Christmas films that we see on Netflix. Because we're always interested in the new cheesy, romantic-y sort of film that gets put on. Did anybody watch Let It Snow this year on Netflix? Anybody? Or is that just me? I loved it. Watch it on Netflix. It's wonderful. But one of the things we too do is we like to watch sometimes like old classic Christmas movies. Now, we're not going to get into the debate of whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not. You can have that over coffee in the foyer. But there is one sort of classic Christmas movie that many of us have seen that's titled Home Alone. In 1990, which 30 years ago, again, blows my mind, the the classic movie Home Alone, the McAllister family is preparing for their Christmas vacation in Paris. The extended family has all gathered and converged with their bags into a single home. Their bags are packed. They are ready to go. They are to leave on their dream vacation in less than 12 hours. But as the family lay asleep, strong weather causes the power to go out at their home. And the result was that all of their alarm clocks were reset and turned off. And that wouldn't be a big deal for us today because most of us use cell phones, right, for our alarm clocks. But remember, there are no cell phones, there are no smartphones, really, in 1990. So the McAllisters, they're like living in the Stone Ages. There's no internet, there's no home computers, there's no anything. And so all of their alarms are reset and they wake up late to sort of get off in a hurry to their vacation. And as they woke up the following morning, they hurriedly got bags loaded into the airport shuttles, bodies clipped into seatbelts. They rushed through the airport check-in process. Oof, that was a lot faster back then than it was. You could probably couldn't have Home Alone today because they would miss their flight due to security checks, right? But as they boarded a plane with just moments to spare. And mid-flight, as they're sort of calming down from the stress of the morning, Kate McAllister the matriarch of the McAllister household awakens with an anxious feeling because they had forgotten one important thing for their trip. Her son, Kevin. (laughs) And any parent who has lost a child may know the sickened, powerless feeling that Mrs. McAllister had in that moment. I've never felt that yet. I'm sure it'll happen one day. We will lose Levi. But in that moment, there's a little feeling of guilt for your failed responsibility. Panic for your vulnerable child. Worry that something terrible has already happened to him. Worst case scenario, I imagine, after worst case scenario gets played through your mind, losing your child is a nightmare that no parent wants to live through. But unlike his mother, Kevin McAllister, portrayed by Macaulay Culkin, classic childhood actor, senses little to no panic once he discovers that he is home alone. In fact, he is rejoicing that he is home alone. He's rejoicing in his good fortune and begins to take full advantage of his Christmas wish and this dream come true scenario for him for Christmas. And in this morning's text, we find what could have been but most likely wasn't, the inspiration to the creation of Home Alone. We find the only recorded event in the Gospels of Jesus' childhood, and it's every parent's worst nightmare. Mary, our Lord's mother, who was so venerated in the previous chapter of Luke's Gospel, has lost her son. Try explaining that one to the almighty God in heaven. Like, where is my son? I have no clue. 
She's distressed, panicking, and probably just freaking out, which is funny to think about Mary probably just freaking out like any other parent would. And unlike his mother, we find Jesus, the preteen, calmly going on with his life, taking full advantage of being home alone. We're going to read this morning from Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52. Luke's gospel reads this way. There, the child, that's Jesus, grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favor was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents don't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere. But why? Did you need a search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. I love that line because I do that as a parent. These little glimpses of your kid's life, you just store them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and all the people. Father, we ask again that you would illuminate this text to us this morning, that we would be stirred and called and encouraged by perhaps what it has, what you have for us, to, for what you have to say to us this morning. Bless the preaching of your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In our text this morning, we find Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. They're traveling to Jerusalem for the annual celebration of Passover, their annual Christmas trip, if you will. Now, only men were required to travel to Jerusalem to attend the annual feast. And so the inclusion of Mary and Jesus, who at the age of 12 wasn't quite considered a man yet, right? Not till 13. You're a grown man at 13 in this culture. That is crazy, but that is how it worked back then. But it sort of highlights the depth of the religious piety of the Holy Family or of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, that they would all attend the festival. Now, the trip to Jerusalem from Nazareth would have taken the family three days. We stress out about driving Levi like two hours or three hours. Can you imagine walking with a young preteen for three days in the wilderness? I wonder how much complaining there was going on in that trip. But during this time period, traveling wasn't nearly as safe as it is today. And so the family, like most, probably traveled, when they traveled longer distances, journeyed with a group of people who were also making the same trek. Now, we can't be sure, but it may have been that women and children followed in the back of the caravan and men traveled towards the front of the caravan. And some scholars and sort of biblical uh, scholars, they've suggested that perhaps Jesus, being at this odd age of 12, 
could have either been, in Mary's mind, traveling with the men because he was almost a man, or in Joseph's mind, traveling with the women and children in the back because he wasn't quite a man yet. We're not sure, but somewhere along the line, there's this hiccup amongst Mary and Joseph, and they lose the divine son of God. But most significant, though, in our text isn't how Mary and Jesus become separated, but the responses of each upon knowledge of their separation. Mary is distressed, anxious, upset. You can only imagine the emotional toil that this had on a parent without the availability of the technology that we have for us today. Upon discovering Jesus, she lashes out with all that pent-up emotion, not with a, how could we have done this to you? I'm so sorry, son. But with an adamant, how could you, Jesus, have done this to us? Your father and I have been frantically searching for you. And Jesus, for his part, calmly responds, no, I've been in my father's house all along. Didn't you know it was necessary for me to be here? And the scene quickly sort of transforms from one of resolved tension to a scene of kids say the darndest things. Mary's emotional state must have quickly turned to puzzled confusion as she questioned, what do you mean you've been in your father's house? I imagine most kids say things at young ages that stick with their parents for years to come, some of them funny and some strangely insightful. Like this past week, as my sister was home and Paige had gone on for a run, uh, my sister asked Levi, where is mommy? She's going for a run, he responded. And she asked him, does daddy go for runs? And he said, no, daddy drinks coffee. <laughs> I was like, oh man, he's tattletelling on me. I need to work out. This is one of those moments though for Mary and Joseph. What is he saying here by his father's house? And the scene of confused travelers not only in introduces but concludes what Luke has to say about the ministry of Jesus. N.T. Wright points out that in Luke's gospel, Jesus' ministry is bookended by travelers on roads concerning themselves with the person and identity of Jesus. If we were to turn our Bibles to the end of Luke's gospel, we find two of the disciples traveling to the road, on the road to Emmaus. While making their way to the city, they're sharing their anguish over the three days that have passed since Jesus' death. And during their journey, Jesus unbeknownst to the travelers, shows up and meets them, explaining to him why it was necessary for him to suffer the death that he did. In our account this morning, we have another couple traveling back to Jerusalem who have spent three days thinking they have lost Jesus, only to discover Jesus, who explains to them why it was necessary for him to be in his father's house. Why? Would Luke begin and conclude the ministry of Jesus in this way? It may be that Luke, in writing his gospel, is writing to people who have some familiarity with Jesus, but find that he's much more elusive than they initially considered. Just when you think you understand him, just when you think you have your arms around him, he's always up to something a little bit different. You see, finding Jesus always, almost always involves a surprise. Jesus doesn't do or say what Mary and Joseph or the disciples on the road to Emmaus expect or anticipate. That is as true for them as it is for us today. Whenever we think that we've exhausted 
our understanding of the person of Jesus, he, and does, he does something unexpected and surprising. We often find that Jesus is up to something we never considered and present somewhere we never thought to look. And if we ever relax, church, in our following and understanding of Jesus, we will quickly discover that he has gone up ahead of us or perhaps stayed behind without us. And so we have to be attentive as a church to what is Jesus up to in the world? What is Jesus actually like? Because if you think you have him figured it out, you don't. And it's only in this sort of, sort of mysterious sort of pursuit of Jesus, knowing that you can never have him fully figured out, that we actually can begin to discover him. And this morning, I want us to see two things that surprised Mary about the identity of her son, Jesus, as she lived this moment and the surprise as we read about this moment today. Perhaps by focusing in on these surprising, though familiar aspects of the person of Jesus, we might find ourselves neither behind or ahead of him, but simply walking beside him. The first aspect of Jesus' identity that may seem surprising to us has to do with his being a child, is that Jesus grew. Jesus grew. In my initial sort of reading of this passage, I circled the first and last verses each record the fact that Jesus grew physically, intellectually, and spiritually. How is it, right, that Jesus, being fully God, grew in knowledge and in grace? In a way, this text allows us to understand what the apostle wrote in Philippians, where he notes that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. One of the things that Jesus empties himself of was his divine omniscience or his knowing everything, right? In our passage this morning, Jesus isn't playing or toying with the religious teachers. He's not like this super genius sitting with a bunch of religious teachers being like, ha ha, I'm smarter than you and I'm smarter than you and I got you. He's sincerely questioning and conversing with them, increasing his wisdom and knowledge and Jesus' growth as a child has two important implications for us today. First, it highlights that we all need and we all have room for growth and wisdom and knowledge about God. If Jesus needed to grow in wisdom and knowledge, it's safe for us to assume that we do too. From this passage, we can see that Jesus sought out teachers of the faith, listened to them, asked them questions, and gave them answers. I'm reminded of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Increase knowledge of God's will and the blessing of God exist in relationship with one another. And it is hard to overstate to me the importance of learning and growing in the Christian life. Paul's plea for Christ followers to be transformed by the renewing of their minds is the means by which they are to discern the will of God. But we cannot increase our knowledge and wisdom of God alone. We, like Jesus, need teachers. We need people to learn from. When I graduated from seminary and moved to Santa Barbara, people gave me all sorts of cards and gifts. But there's one that has remained 
the most important gift that I received, and that was a gift from my mentor. He gave me his old used and read Bible. At first, I thought, just what I needed, another Bible, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I've been in the church. I think the average household has seven Bibles in their homes in America, which is mind-boggling. But he gave me another Bible, and I thought, come on, Tim, like, out of all the things you could give me, a Bible? You know I got a Bible, and I like it better than yours. <laughs> but after using it, though, I found that it was littered with comments written in the margins, references that sort of connected this passage with this passage and insights of things that he thought that helped me to unlock sort of meanings of verses. And when I study from that Bible, it's as though I'm reading it with his guidance. Like, hey, think about this. Think about this idea. Think about this text. This is the important word in this verse. That's why I circled it. And I encourage you, church, to find someone a teacher, a friend, a mentor that can help increase your knowledge and understanding of God. We, like Jesus, need to increase in our wisdom and knowledge of God. It is one of the joys, I think, of the Christian life is that we are learners for the rest of our lives about what it means to be human and what it means to be in relationship with God. And though we should increase in knowledge and wisdom of God, it is not a prerequisite or requirement for sincere faith. You see, we should recognize that Jesus' limited wisdom and knowledge don't make him incapable of a sincere commitment to faith. As Jesus was 12, when we find him thirsting for wisdom and knowledge of God in the temple, and his youthfulness in this text isn't a demonstration of the sort of naivete or the gullibility of children. Rather, it highlights to us the sincerity of faith that all people are capable of maintaining and keeping. This has serious ramifications on who we consider are able to make commitments of faith. And our church is a beautiful community that underscores this truth. You can be as smart as a physicist or simply be a small child in preschool and you can have genuine faith. You can have grown up in the church and know all the stories and all the songs of yesteryears. You can know the page numbers of your favorite hymnal still. Or you could have walked into church this morning for the first time and both have sincere faith before God. You can have formal Bible training and theological training or be unable to name any of the four gospels and still have sincere faith. You see, there's no intellectual prerequisite. There's no sort of certain level of intellectual assent that you have to make to have sincere faith b before God. But our sincere faith should always move us to increasing our wisdom and knowledge of God. Amen? The second part or the second aspect of Jesus' identity that should surprise us in this passage is that identity as a family member. The main point of this passage may lie in the contrast between when Mary says, your father and I have been worried about you, and Jesus' response that I've been in my father's house. You see, upon discovering her, quote, lost son, Mary exclaims, your father and I have been searching for you everywhere. And Jesus responds in the following verse, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? See, Jesus' response to his mother raises a number of interesting questions, at least to me. Did Mary and Joseph reveal to him the nature, right, of her pregnancy? Like, when do you explain that to Jesus? Like, Joseph's sort of your dad, but like, kind of not, but 
so how did that work? Like, how did that conversation go about the birds and the bees with Jesus? It would make no sense, right? But if so, like, how do you explain that to your son? How do you explain that you are the, listen, Jesus, you are the divine son of God. Like, that's a trump card no parent wants to give to their child, right? Like, you better listen to me, do what I say. I'm the divine son of God. I can do whatever I want, right? But if he didn't know, like, where does his awareness of his father come from? How does he know? If Mary and Joseph didn't sit him down and just kind of explain to him how this all came about, how does he know who his father is, right? And we can't really quickly gain answers to these questions. They're just interesting ones, right, to think about. They have to remain unanswered, at least for now. But there's no doubt, though, there's no doubt that Jesus' response to Mary is significant. Luke highlights this fact by making them the first words that Jesus utters in his gospel. Interesting. Why does Luke say that these are the first things that Jesus says in the gospel? Didn't you know it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? You see, not only do they fulfill the prophecy spoken to Mary by the angel Gabriel in chapter one, right? Where he declared that her son would be called the son of God. These words act as a sort of pronouncement or proclamation that Jesus understands his unique relationship with God. You see, by delineating who, is, who his true father is, Jesus has made known his primary loyalties and commitments, and they belong to his heavenly father rather than his earthly father. As one pastor writes, it seems to me that the main teaching of the passage is that Jesus now recognizes his unique sonship to God and that his mission will require of him a devotion to God's purposes so great that it takes precedence over the closest family ties. He must follow his calling, even if it brings pain and misunderstanding. You see, while Jesus' unique sonship to God and unique mission are his alone, he will later teach that a requirement to follow him requires a commitment that takes precedence over family earthly family ties. You see, later in Luke's gospel, Jesus speaks strong words regarding families. In speaking to a crowd in chapter eight, Jesus reveals that those who are his true family are those who hear and practice the word of God. And later in Luke 14, he says these words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. This morning's text, along with these other teachings about family, have two implications for us today. The first is that disciples of Jesus must take their commitment to God as primary over all other relationships. Now, before I get ahead of myself, let me say that this does not mean that followers of Jesus alienate themselves from non-believing family members, throw away relationships with people who do not follow Jesus or look down on family members who do not know Jesus. Those relationships, they're still significant. And those relationships, they still need to be honored. But what we see here is that when the relational commitments between earthly families and with our heavenly father conflict, Christians must honor the commitment to God the Father first and foremost. Now, the way that this can express itself are too numerous to count, but some more serious than others. I remember witnessing a simple illustration of this just a few years ago. When I was in Santa Barbara, one of our students who maintains a sincere faith in Jesus and seeks to follow Jesus entirely is part of a family that does not believe those same things. 
He's the only believer in his family. And during the Christmas holiday, the demand for time from both families, Christian you know, church family and your biological family, this tension only ever increases, right? And I remember that the student's family was holding a family gathering on Christmas Eve, and their church family was also holding a significant gathering that evening as well. And being unable to be at two places at once, there was a decision to be made. Which of these do I attend? Which one am I committed to being at? And he, for his part, chose to be at the Christmas Eve service and then head over late to the family gathering. And while it's a simple and maybe a silly illustration, it gets to the point. Commitment to the family of God remains primary over all other commitments. This is the radical call of discipleship by Jesus which sounds crazy to us today, that we would place any relationship above our family ties, right? But beyond this implication of family commitments of like the individual, there also remains an implication of this for our church community here today. You see, the reality is that there are people like this student that I just mentioned that don't have earthly families that share their faith. And I believe it is the responsibility of those who do the will of God to be stand-in mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters to them in the church and in faith. That is, we are to treat and relate to one another as if we are family because the spiritual reality is that we are family. Let me say that again. (laughs) We are to treat and relate to one another as if we are family because of the spiritual reality that we actually are family. In the church that I attended throughout seminary, there was an elderly gentleman in the church that often referred to me as his grandson uh, because he felt this sort of like kinship in faith with me, which some of you actually do as well, which is great, pastor grandson. And I often referred to him as my grandpa, Grandpa Doc, while I mainly did this because I think it made him feel good. He got a little kick out of it that I would call him grandpa. It was also this sort of verbal declaration of a spiritual reality. We are family. We're both family. Do we treat each other as such? Are we committed to one another as such? If somebody came to a worship service, if they came to a gathering of our congregation, they're like, whoa, is everyone related in here? Because there is something, there's some sort of intimacy of relationship that is just unique about this place. This is the call for the church and our relationships here. Or are we just like ships passing in the night? Hey, it's good to see you this morning. It's great to see you at service. I've missed you for a few weeks. What does it look like for us to cultivate within our congregation this sense of family You see, Jesus' identity as a family member gives us clarity about what it means to be a member of God's family. It is primary. At the close of this morning's text, we see Jesus returning home with Mary and Joseph. Having set the stage for his adult ministry, Luke won't pick up on the life of Jesus for another 18 years. It is mind-blowing to me that you have one story of Jesus' life between his birth and the start of his ministry. In those 30 years, we know nothing about what Jesus was doing. But it's a reminder to us that things are always done best in God's timing, amen? And perhaps this morning is the time for you to make a decision of faith or to make next steps in your faith by seeking out a teacher or mentor. How are you gonna go about in this next year growing in the wisdom of God and in the knowledge of God? 
What would that look like for you? Maybe you need to finally make your relationship with God the primary commitment in your life. Maybe, maybe there's in your life, over the past year, there's like all of these commitments here and God's somewhere down there. It's the one that always gets thrown in the back end of the burner, right? Uh, that's how it's always felt when I was doing youth ministry. Like the commitment to youth group was always like secondary to everything else that was going on in people's lives. Perhaps God is calling you this day and this next year, what would it look like for you to make the commitment to me as primary above all things? Or perhaps... There's someone in our congregation that has been placed on your heart to embrace as part of your family. Maybe there's, maybe there's this sense in you that you've just sort of drifted and sort of marginally connected to this place. You've never been a part of a group. You've never been a part of a, a Bible study where there was relationships being built. And you feel this sense like, man, I want that. I want our church to look like family together. And it's time for you to sort of in this next year step up in your commitment to the people that are sitting in this sanctuary together. But however it is that God might be encouraging or calling you to respond to his word, may I encourage you to let him lead you and to be faithful to the ways that God is calling you to move. Let's pray. Jesus, they're such simple ideas. Learn, grow in wisdom. Be committed to one another. Make the relationship with you primary. And yet, there's so much room to grow in these things. And our longing, Lord, is that we would be faithful in the, these simple calls of discipleship. That we would take seriously the example of Jesus to pursue increased knowledge of your will and of you that we would sincerely have this conviction that our families were those who did the will of our Father. And so we ask God that you would sort of present to us opportunities in which we can faithfully respond to the ways that you've called us to be discipled in the world, that you would give us the courage, perhaps, to pursue those things in the upcoming year. And we trust that you will. And we trust that when we are found in the midst of obedience, that you will increase our knowledge, that you will increase our relational intimacy, and somehow in the midst of that, you will make us a salt and light of the world. Be with our church in the upcoming year, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Now may the God of peace, church, make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. And God will make this happen. For he who calls you is faithful. Go in his peace this week. God bless.